listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode five, season two, and tonight we're going to be talking about Ohio versus impeachment. Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Uh, happy holiday season. Happy New Year. Um, this will be our final show of 2017. It was an awesome year. Uh, go in and rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps bump up our ratings, helps other people find us faster on, uh, on podcasts. And also check us out, 614 Now listed us as one of the top 10 most bingeable uh, podcasts in Columbus. So really cool honor here to, to round out our first year ever as a show. Um, thanks to the people over there at 614. Uh, it's always nice to be recognized for all the hard work that we put in. Our guest will be Bruce Carlson. He was on the first episode of the season. He's the host of one of my favorite podcasts, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Subscribe to it on iTunes right away. Uh, and Bruce and I are going to talk about the process of impeachment, what is, you know, how does it work? And we're going to look at Senator Ben Wade of Ohio in the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson in 1868. And we'll discuss with Bruce the history and the politics surrounding the impeachment of our 17th President Andrew Johnson in the political life of Senator Ben Wade from Northeast Ohio, who was one vote away from becoming the 18th President of the United States. We'll look at Senator Wade's incredible life, and we'll look again at all the politics surrounding the first presidential impeachment in U.S. history. We'll delve into the person who cast that deciding vote, a senator from Kansas named Edmund Ross. He's the subject of a very famous chapter of JFK's book, Profiles and Courage, saying that it's one of the most heroic acts in American history by Senator Ross. We're going to debunk that. We're going to debunk that theory for the most part that JFK threw that Edmund Ross was a heroic person. We'll talk with Bruce about how some of the evidence shows that maybe there was some political maneuvering, some bribery even, in the offing when it came to the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Impeachment seems to be talked about a lot more these days. Um, As Bruce says, you know, it's always... uh, it's always brought up, you know, no matter who the president is, but you seem to be hearing more and more about it, whether it's these, you know, the probe into the Russia situation um, or just generally people's dislike for President Trump. For example, just this month, December 6, 2017, a member of the House of Representatives uh, formally introduced articles of impeachment, called for a vote. Now, the articles to impeach President Trump uh, failed, 364 to 58, uh, but still 58 of our congresspeople voted for impeachment just a couple of weeks ago. So it is something that is on the, the lips and the minds of a lot of people in Washington and around the country, and I think it's important that we figure out actually how it works and what it is, and let's look at the history of it. Um, 
and how it pertains again to Ohio and Senator Ben Wade, who is in the middle of this political firestorm almost exactly 150 years ago. Thanks to our partners in the Record Store podcast uh, with Vincent Grant. It's a music uh, music show. They interview bands. They have live performances, uh, bands all over Ohio, even some national acts that they interview. Um, check them out at intherecordstore.com um, or on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your pods. Um, again, in the Record Store, really cool show. Um, we're glad to be partnering with them. Uh, this season. Our partners on this episode, though, are our friends over at Land Grant Brewing. Uh, Land Grant Brewery is located in Franklinton in Columbus. They've got a tap, uh, even a little restaurant at the John Glenn International Airport. Um, and there are beer for today's episode. 1862 Ale. It's an American Kolsch Ale. Um, and we actually sat down with Walt Keys uh, and his sister Julie, who works there, was also with us. A uh, good friend of mine. And we talked about this 1862 ale, how it ties into today's episode, and, and Walt even dropped a little history on us. So check it out. We're sitting here on a weekday, a school mm-hmm. day, drinking a beer. It's the holidays, though. It is the holidays. Um, tell me about 1862 ale. What's a Kolsch? What, what am I drinking? A Kolsch ale is uh, a German-style yeah, German um, beer, pretty easy drinking beer. Uh, very sort of classic beer style. Originally brewed as sort of an ale um, answer to Pilsner's, which Czech Pilsner kind of swept Europe, um, whatever year that was, and and people were drinking a lot of uh, Czech beer, and German brewers kind of developed Kolsch as a, an answer to that. So it's got a very similar uh, flavor profile to uh, like a Pilsner clean lager. Um, we call ours an American Kolsch, though, because we do dry hop it. Um, with some cascade hops to give it a little bit of a yeah, it's really good. A little bit of a sure. punch of uh, <laughs> hop, and especially on the aroma from the dry hop, you get a little of that American hop um, bouquet to it. So it's an answer to to the Pilsner craze of like the mm-hmm. what's eighteen hundreds or something. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I don't want to say a year because I'll be wrong. But, right. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, so so people that like that like Pilsner, like you know, easy drinking lagers. Um, a Kolsch is a nice sort of ale. Um, equivalent to that this is like a i feel like this would be a good summer beer mm-hmm. yeah it's it's definitely um but this is one of your flagship it's one of your uh yeah. one of your four year rounds right yeah it's it's a quote-unquote crushable beer it is it, um, is it goes down real easy <laughs> during the summertime i mean a hot day um it's really good and and the the thing about Kolsch is traditionally they're served in kind of a tall skinny glass yeah um, which we use at land grant at the brewery um so like a 10 ounce glass that's just kind of a rod shaped glass uh, and the idea is that if you're in a brewery or a bar in cologne germany which is where it's from so um that's where the name kolsch comes from they will just keep giving you these rods these rods of beer until you put a coaster on your on top of your glass and say no more <laughs> um and it's served that way because you're it's meant to be drank quick and cold um, it's not a beer you want to sip on for a long time. You yeah. want to drink it fresh and fast and crushable cold. Yeah, exactly. Like Julie said. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's going on? What's new with Land Grant, uh, 2018? Uh, we got a lot going on. Um, just open, uh, Ray Ray's just open oh, yeah, down, right. uh, at the tap room. So we're open for lunch now, Thursdays and Fridays. Oh, I'm going to have to come um, down for and that. They're for open sure. Thursday through Sunday down there. So that's been really great for us. Um, got a lot of fun beers, a lot of fun events planned for 2018 coming up, but, yeah, it's for us. It's a wild ride from basically spring until 
the end of the holidays. So we're kind of luckily coming up on a, a time where we can kind of catch our breath a That's little cool. bit and plan for the rest of the year. But Are you guys, uh, I think our one of our beers for the episode, we had you guys our beer for the episode one of the time we did uh, Oval Beach. I don't oh, know yeah. if you're bringing back Oval Beach or not. But. Oval Beach will be back. Uh, it will have a different name this year uh, because... Uh, there's a brewery in Michigan that makes a beer called Oval Beach that we <laughs> that we because there actually is an Oval Beach up in Michigan. You got a friendly um, letter. Yeah, no, they were very friendly about it, but uh, um, we are going to give it a different name. Can will be the same. It'll be along the same lines, um, but that Belgian blonde uh, was really nice in, in springtime, so that'll be back. Um, we've, I think we did about. 31, 32 beers in cans this year. Yeah, I was looking at the website. So, yeah, it's a lot. LandGrantBrewing.com, right? Land yeah, LandGrantBrewing.com. You can read all about it. But as the as the creative director and designer there, that, that keeps me pretty busy to churn out that many brands. Yeah, and that's an beer. awesome beer cover. I love the Oval Beach. Uh, yeah. That's really sweet. We're going to have Walt back on later in the show to talk about um, an act that was passed. The Land Grant Act was actually proposed by Senator Ben Wade the subject of today's show, um, in 1862 when it was passed. So we're drinking the 1862 American Coal Shale today. It's really good. Pick it up, uh, and we'll have Walt back on here later in the show. But let's get started. We're going to talk about Ohio versus impeachment today and how Ben Wade came within one vote of becoming president. We're going to talk about the impeachment of a president. It's episode five, Ohio versus impeachment. is impeachment the power to impeach which is solely vested in, by the constitution into the legislature the congress three presidents have been impeached in, in our history two ending in acquittal including most recently with president clinton in the, in the late 90s uh, and one ended in a resignation before it actually went to a, a senate vote and senate hearing uh, president nixon resigning in the summer of 1974, before he would have been impeached by the Senate. You know, Article 2, uh, Section 4 of the U.S. Con Constitution outlines uh, the impeachment process, you know, a little bit. But again, it's, it's been crafted over, you know, a couple hundred years um, of practice. But it basically says that people can be impeached, removed from office, if they're convicted of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It's really that last phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, that you see so often uh, with President Clinton, uh, with the case that we'll talk about today, the impeachment of our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, in 1868. Johnson's impeachment was also based on that high crimes and misdemeanor language you see in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution. The House votes, just like we had this month when someone tried to uh, impeach President Trump in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives simply votes on articles of impeachment. It's just a simple majority. So if you can get, I guess it would be 218 votes out of the 435 congressmen to swing your way, you can file those articles of impeachment. Um, and they are sent to the Senate. And the Senate basically holds a trial. But when it comes to the Senate actually impeaching a president, they need to get a two-thirds vote. 67 
senators out of 100 need to vote to impeach. That two-third majority is is not been reached the two times that people have voted on it. Now, it's a razor-thin margin we'll talk about today, and there's a lot of controversy about that vote in 1868 with President Johnson that would have made our subject of today's episode, Ben Wade from Ohio, the president. But again, it's a two-thirds majority in the Senate to impeach a president. We're so glad to have Bruce Carlson back from from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics as our guest today. He's got a great episode called Mysteries of Impeachment, um, and he goes through three different uh, impeachments in, in, in U.S. history, including the one we'll talk about today. But we asked Bruce just what is impeachment? Uh, lay it out for our listeners. For such an important period in history, an impeachment is in the news because at least some group of people would like to see the president impeached. Exactly. And more serious talk about it than the normal. There's always, every time anyone's president, there's there's stickers that appear, impeach mm-hmm. X. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously a little more serious talk. So I wanted to talk about what it was really and take the various mysteries of impeachment, things that we don't really know because they're still being formulated as there's only been so many uh, impeachments. For instance, you know, is... Does the Senate really put the president on trial? Mm -hmm. Is it really a court? Um, You know, uh, can can you impeach the president, the VP, at the same time? Yeah, that was a great Um, discussion you had. Is it as, as as, um, now I'm trying to remember the name of this critic. Yes, it was Luther Martin the Maryland delegate to the Constitutional Convention who didn't like the Constitution, as he reported back to his state, is impeachment even viable? Because you've got a House and a Senate, and the House has to stick their neck out, and then and then the Senate gets to convict or impeach, so the House has to incur the wrath of this powerful office you've created. This is what Luther Martin said back in the, in the, in the uh, 1700s. So... I, and his question to, has never been really answered to me. In fact, I think he may be right, the mechanism that he describes. And a key case, of course, for impeachment, and even in assessing Luther Martin's statement, is the Andrew Johnson impeachment. But that's never quite been resolved through history. Is the Senate really uh, a court like that? Or is it just a political body making a political decision? Because it definitely means two different things. If you're a court, well, the defendant has a lot more rights. You know, I hear all the charges that are against him. He gets to, uh, you know, uh, counter all of the witnesses, gets to confront the witnesses. He's innocent till proven guilty. Yeah. Um, there's a whole set of things. He can't be tried twice. There's a whole set of things that happen with courts that don't happen with impeachment. It also changes how a senator must approach the decision. If it's a political matter, it's a political matter. If it's a court, well, it shouldn't matter what party you're a part of. You're just listening to evidence and deciding to convict or not. So it's definitely one of those mysteries of, a, of something that I think Americans think is so settled. But impeachment is certainly still being worked out. The subject of today's episode, Senator Benjamin Wade from the corner of Northeast Ohio outside of Ashtabula, in a place called Jefferson, Ohio, still exists today, a couple thousand residents just south of Ashtabula, right in the very, very corner of Northeast Ohio, just south of the lake. Ashtabula, or Beulah, as people call it, um, 
It's actually the home. Uh, it's it's the hometown of Urban Meyer, the head coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes, uh, a town I've got a really good friend from from Beulah. I've been up there a few times. Um, and it's right up on the water, uh, industrial town uh, in Northeast Ohio. Wade's family moves from. He's born in the East. He's born in Massachusetts, a very well-to-do Eastern New England family. Like a lot of people, his family moves into the Western Reserve, an area settled by people from mostly Connecticut and Massachusetts um, who come into you know, places like Cleveland and Ashtabula. Um, Wade's family, they are very, they're frontiersmen. And he was known for being very rough and gruff. Cattle, you know, he drove cattle. Uh, he actually started working on the Erie Canal when he moved up into Northeast Ohio um, and becomes a lawyer. He practices law in Jefferson, Ohio. Um, he's, a, he's a Whig, actually. We, we talk A lot of these people we talk about were members of the Whig Party. Uh, there was no Republican Party. He'll end up becoming a Republican, a radical Republican in the Senate. Um, he serves in the Ohio Senate. Again, a prominent lawyer in Northeast Ohio. Actually becomes a judge in Akron, Summit County judge, um, which raises his profile. And lands himself, wins in... Uh, wins a seat in the United States Senate, and he takes office, uh, and he's sworn into the U.S. Senate in 1851. We asked Bruce just about uh, Senator Wade, his upbringing um, on the frontier in the Western Reserve of Northeast Ohio. Benjamin Wade, I mean, from, from Ohio, uh, from you know, the, uh, the eastern part of the state, uh, Jefferson, um, but a guy that... that is reared in kind of a pioneer life, a tough guy, cattle driver. I mean, literally, uh, his family and he, uh, start out making money driving cattle in these very rich lands for this and driving them to Eastern markets. And it was said that sometimes Wade couldn't see much of a difference between the cattle that he was driving and the people that he was uh, dealing with and his in colleagues, the way yeah. his colleagues in the way that he commanded people. But you can also go too far with that because he also garnered great respect and he was quite a leader. And even what he, what he always did was attract people who were the strongest, who were the big heavyweights and they liked him and they, they saw him as somebody displaying courage. So he had that too going for him. The Ohio that Ben Wade grows up in, in the 1820s and 1830s, it really was the frontier. It was the, you know, the undiscovered, untamed wilderness. The Western Reserve, as it was called. Cities like Cleveland began to crop up. The Erie Canal, uh, you know, develops places like Conneaut, Ohio, and, and Ashtabula, in, in the little town of Jefferson, just south where Ben Wade was from. We talked to Bruce just about uh, early 19th century Ohio and, and kind of its perception nationally. Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, Ohio, Ohio is the West. I mean, it's the dream of the, the eastern seaboard as the country's gaining its independence. You know, it really is. I mean, George Washington, the whole reason he's, in, he's investing, he, he, he becomes a militia officer. And what he's trying to do up there is get this land settled. He's, he's, he's purchasing acres up in the, in, the, in the route. You know, the Ohio River, the Ohio Valley is the dream. And that's the first American West, really. Yeah. Population goes from, you know, tens of thousands of settlers 
type of independence to, to, to half a million in 1820. I mean, this is the this is the California. This is everything. The Ohio craze. And so it's still so important. And it is a good way to see politics, too, even at the time. I only talk about 30 years later. And Ben Wade comes from that type of a family, from that type of a pioneer, uh, pioneering family also you know, coming in, in the reserve. So they're in the, the New England side of Ohio, and they have those values. The other character in this story is President Andrew Johnson, one of the most unlikeliest presidents of all time. Johnson, born in North Carolina, lived most of his life in Tennessee, a place called Greenville, Tennessee. It's where he's buried today. He was a tailor. No education, didn't go to college, didn't even really go to school. Did a number of different jobs, but spent most of his career as a tailor. A tailor who would become president. Um, he ends up becoming the senator from Tennessee. Never cared for the, the planter class, the plantation owners. A slave owner, you know, a slave owner himself, a pretty virulent racist himself, as a mid-19th century Southerner. But he had no love loss for plantation owners, rich Southerners, the Charleston class, as, as Bruce Carlson calls it. It's a theme that would, would come up many times during his presidency and his career. But when he's a member of the Senate and Tennessee votes to secede from the Union in 1861, Johnson is the only Southern senator who stays on. Tennessee, a real border state, um, Johnson decides to stay in the Senate in 1861, 62, and 63. He's a voting member just like everybody else. And he's admired in the North for that stance, for not leaving his post. Um, becomes, you know, the, the military governor of Tennessee, all these things. But in 1864, President Lincoln's got a tough election. The war is dragging on. His popularity is actually much lower than you would think, uh, you know, such a great president as President Lincoln was. He ditches his former running mate, Vice President Hannibal Hamlin, a fellow abolitionist from, from Maine, from, you know, upper society of, of New England. And he replaces Hamlin with the Tennessee, the Southern Senator, Andrew Johnson. Johnson and Lincoln go on to win the election over General McClellan in November of 1864. We asked Bruce Carlson, who was Andrew Johnson? Um, how did he get on this ticket? Where did he come from? And how, you know, he becomes our 17th president. This will sound a little left field, but midterms matter. And I think then and now, midterms matter. Midterms change everything. And in 1862... The Republicans had a terrible midterm and Democrats and other opponents, union, union, conservative, uh, conservative, conservative unionist parties in Maryland, Kentucky, Delaware and Democrats gained seats in the Congress, which scared Lincoln. They almost through some procedural uh, maneuvers, almost took over the Congress, which might have ended the war. You know, again, these these were war Democrats, but still they were not interested in pursuing the war as vigorously as were Republicans. So real scared about those results in 1862 uh, and about the progress in the war and northern opinion of the progress of the war. So Lincoln and some other more moderate 
Republicans decided that it would be best to go into coalition with war Democrats. And they looked and they saw in, in Tennessee the one senator who had stayed in Congress from the South during the Civil War when everyone else left and joined Dixie, right. Andrew Johnson. And he was tough and he was had no problem prosecuting those who were disloyal to the Union. He was a strong Unionist and he was military governor of Tennessee and performed well in that job. And so they put him on the ticket. You're listening to Ohio Be the World because you like Ohio's history, but you're also going to like Ohio's music. Discover better music on In the Record Store. My name is Vince. I'm actually going to be on a future episode here with Alex talking about some rock history here in Ohio. It's fantastic. It's going to be going to be a great episode. So uh, when you're done with this, make sure you check out In the Record Store wherever you download podcasts. And now without further ado, give it up for the man himself. It is Alex Hasty, and it's Ohio Be the World. Thanks a lot, Vince. It's our friends Vince and Grant over at In The Record Store Podcast. They can help you discover new music. Check them out at intherecordstore.com. Benjamin Wade becomes an attorney. Like we said, even later becomes a judge, an Ohio senator along the way. We talk about the Senate today in the Congress. And we talk about how divided everything is and how they can't get anything done. And this is the worst it's ever been for politics in this country. There's no time in the Congress, I believe, that was worse than the 1850s. It's a time in which Ben Wade is in the Senate. He joins the Senate in 1851, representing Ohio. And he's voting on things like the Fugitive Slave Act, things like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed, in 1854, a compromise that allowed the Kansas and Nebraska citizens to vote whether or not they wanted slavery, canceling the old Missouri Compromise of 1820 which didn't allow any slavery above the 36th parallel. But the tension was incredible. The caning of Charles Sumner, the senator, when a representative, Preston Brooks, walked into into the Senate chamber with his walking stick and nearly beat Charles Sumner, one of the leading abolitionists, to death. Um, Thomas Hart Benton, Missouri senator, uh, menacingly, you know, approached another senator named Foote. Foote pulled a gun on him. The Senate chamber's you know, thrown into chaos, and Benton says, I'm unarmed, let him fire. Um, cooler heads barely prevailed that day. But the Senate in the 1850s was a crazy place. The country was falling apart. These senators were trying to hold it together with duct tape. And those are the rough-and-tumble politics that Senator Wade grew up in. Like I said, a senator from you know, 1851 to 1868, he's in that frying pan of politics that was Washington, D.C. in the 1850s leading up to the Civil War. And Ben Wade becomes one of the leading voices in what were called the Radical Republicans, really stemming out of that Kansas-Nebraska Act, a group, a pretty large segment of the Republican Party that thought slavery had to be abolished at all costs, that the Civil War was fought ultimately just to abolish slavery, that African Americans had the right to, to vote in full citizenship. Wade is one of those leading voices. We ask our guest, Bruce Carlson, just about the radical Republicans, the 1850s in the Congress, how insane it was, uh, and, and Senator Wade as a senator. And, and no doubt that especially as you start out in the early 50s, there's a great struggle. And really, the Democrats in the South probably is winning the battle, at least in the, in the early part of that decade. They, they have more success. They're more 
organized. It's Kansas, Nebraska, and that act in 1854 that throws everything into uh, into the wild. And, you know, Lincoln comes back from a semi-retirement and everybody's uh, forming new parties. But there are a lot of different players in these parties. Some are just anti-Nebraskans. Some are know-nothings. Some are the beginnings of the actual Republican Party that we know today. Some are still calling themselves Democrats or Whigs, but staying within factions. And it is just a whole melee. At one point, they can't elect a speaker. And they, they uh, after, this, uh, after the wave of discontent from that midterm uh, in 1854, where there's a, uh, where there's opposition to the the Nebraska Act and the and the elimination of the Missouri Compromise, and you, you just see this uh, seething um, uh, anger at everything, and uh, and they can't even elect a speaker for for months, and there, there's there's actually almost a, a physical fight in the Hall of Congress, and the the Sergeant at Arms has to come down with the mace in order to stop people from fighting. <laughs> it's not he's not going to use the mace, but it works well enough, but it doesn't heal the wounds. And so that, that gives you the scene. I think a radical Republican would be defined as those who, after the Civil War, wanted to, in fact, you know, in fact, finish the job and have a harsher reconstruction and maybe even harsher than and certainly harsher in Bed Wade's case than Abraham Lincoln uh, wanted and. Abraham Lincoln was was not somebody that Wade really respected at any time, um, which is kind of a hard thing for contemporary listeners to to think about. We 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 adore Lincoln, and Ben Wade didn't. He thought he had too much of the milk of human kindness to really punish the South for what they've done. He he was one of those group of senators who felt South had lost the war, they were conquered, and it was time to install. Northern run governments and oversee and make sure, you know, not not all for horrible purposes, of course, for for some good purposes, like, for instance, to make sure that African-Americans rights were in real, you know, were treated in a real sense um, equal to those of whites and not just uh, kind of, uh, okay, we're going to end slavery, but still institute laws to keep you in effect enslaved. I mean, some of these states had had laws where, for instance, if if a African American wasn't working, they could be taken by the county and forced to work back to slavery. So um, that was um, these are the type of things and abuses that they were fighting against, and that would be the radical Republican side. Yeah, I got to stop right there. Um, something you got to understand about 1860s politics. The radical Republicans are like the liberal Democrats, okay? The Democrats are more like the modern-day Republicans. That's not a one-to-one, but um, we ask, you know, Bruce about that. It's, it's flip-flopped. Uh, it'll take you a minute to get your head around that. But Ben Wade is really more of a leftist in a lot of ways than, than other uh, senators, even though he's a Republican. And that's the way he was, too, as a senator. And that's why you see him involved in so many of these issues. Some are still issues today, you know, African-American rights, women's rights, uh, the, the, the 13th Amendment. Um, and he was he didn't shy away from tough fights. And he was a believer in human rights and a believer, actually, that capitalism has its flaws. And as a person who had worked his way up and also was involved in many cases, uh, was looking out for 
people and average people and uh, wanted to see more equality in wages, wanted to see labor unions and early experiments and that type of thing. And, uh, and he definitely brought all of this to the debate about reconstruction and the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Senator Wade has a lot of accomplishments, especially during the war. He becomes a leading voice in the Senate um, and eventually rises to become the Senate pro temp, the head of the Senate, basically. Uh, you know, he's at the Battle of Bull Run that first summer of, uh, of 1861, the battle in Virginia. People actually went to that battle, stood up on the bluffs, had picnics and drinks and food, um, and watched the battle turn against the Union Army. Watched that Union Army, the Great Skedaddle, as it was called, um, how they ran back to, West, uh, to, to Washington, D.C. Wade was among those people. He, he was nearly captured by the Confederates trying to escape the battlefield in Manassas, Virginia. But after that, watching that battle, Wade becomes one of the leading voices on the Committee on the Conduct of the War. They hold hearings. They hold generals, officers. They analyze the failures of, the, of that war in the first couple of years. They try to hold people accountable for their mistakes in battle. You know, he has a rivalry with, with President Lincoln. He didn't think Lincoln was radical enough, uh, whether it was on emancipation, whether it was on using African-American troops, whether it was just on the conduct of the war, the generals that were being put in charge. He even passes what's called the Wade Davis Act. And we ask Bruce about that act, but it was kind of a repatriation of how do we get these states back into the Union? This is in 1864, once the war is done. Davis, you know, Wade Davis Act uh, really called for 50% of the voting, you know, of the voting public in every succeeding state to take a loyalty oath. Lincoln thought that that was absolutely insane. He proposed a, you know, a 10%. But we asked him about the Wade Davis Act, which was somewhat popular throughout the country. Um, but we asked him why it was never passed. President Lincoln wanted a let him up easy. He wanted a very simple reconstruction that would bring the most states back into the Union after the Civil War as quickly as possible and get them back into the Union. And Lincoln, this was his perception of things, that if we could get 10 percent and, you know, in the in the states that are in the Confederacy, it's not hard to imagine. I think in particular, this was easy to do in Louisiana, where. 10%, 10%, that's easy. New Orleans, there were a lot of unionists. There were a lot of people who had just moved from New York living in New Orleans at the time mm-hmm. of the Civil War. Um, it, it wasn't impossible, but 10% is a pretty low bar. And also, Lincoln is not a member of the Congress. So a lot of people were affronted that he was even you know, using his military power to deal with what might be a civilian matter. So uh, B- Benjamin Wade uh, passes this, this bill which puts Reconstruction back with the Congress and says when Congress says they're states, that's when they're states. Not when, not when people do a 10%, 10% of them take an oath to the Union. Um, so you have a big disagreement. I referenced earlier, Benjamin Wade is not one of these people who celebrates Lincoln. He saw him as a political conniver and somebody who was too weak to deal with the victory that they had actually achieved and uh, uh, criticized several at several times Lincoln's conduct of the war. So uh, Lincoln vetoes the bill. Now, 
He vetoes it using a pocket veto. So the Senate, they're not in session. And a lot of people um, note that, of course, if he had done it during a live session, it might have been overridden. I mean, that's how that's how strong the Congress at that time felt about these issues and didn't like Lincoln's plan. Doing it as a pocket veto gave it a little bit of time because where it was popular somewhat and, and Lincoln does a, a message about his veto, one of the first uh, few uh, veto messages that would that a president would send to the public um, on it. It's somewhat popular in the North with American people, maybe more popular than the way Davis approach and when and the congressional reconstruction. So it's not like Ben Davis has a clear um, it's not like uh, Benjamin Wade has a has a clear slate with American public opinion. What the Republicans are doing in Congress is perhaps a little left of where northern public opinion is. But it's also the end of a war. And that's often the time when, you know, radical steps are taken. important act in American history that Senator Wade was responsible for was called the Morrell Act, the Land Grant Act. Our guest, you know, earlier, uh, Walt Keyes uh, and his sister Julie, who also works there, uh, came by to talk about it. You know, Walt's kind of a local expert on the Land Grant Act, uh, since that's the name of the brewery. We're sitting here drinking a, an 1862 ale, um, which is named after the year that the Land Grant Act was passed. Wade introduced that into the Senate, and we asked Walt um, to tell us, you know, what was that land-grant act? How did it create the Ohio State University um, and all these great, you know, state-run universities that we see today? Um, why is it called in 1862, and who's this, who's this old man who looks like, a, like he'd be on a dollar bill? So the old man that's commonly misidentified as, you know, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or <laughs> yeah, I can see it a little Thomas bit. Jefferson or whoever is uh, that's Justin Morrill, who was uh, a legislator from uh, Vermont, who actually uh, introduced the Land Grant Act uh, to Congress in 1862. Oh, there you go. Um, that makes a lot yeah, of sense. So, so let's uh, you know what's this? It's called the Morrill Act or the Land Grant mm-hmm. Morrill Land Grant Act. What you know? What is it? So what did it do? So essentially, the Morrill Act um, established public um, and accessible higher education here in the United States, um, with the idea the idea being this act granted federal land to each state um, so that they could then sell or use to fund um, a public university. So each state would get thirty thousand acres per. Um, congressmen, so it was, you know, scaled based on how big the state's population was at the time. Um, the schools that were started as land-grant schools are kind of your big state schools now. I mean, Ohio State um, being the obvious example. Where you're an alum. I am an alum. Adam's an alum. We got a lot of uh, proud Ohio State alumni at the land-grant brewing company. Where'd Julie go to school? Uh, I don't know. Julie, where'd you go to school? Miami University? Oh, that's right. That's right. I, I should have done that. Um an old school, but um, yeah, it is an old school. It's got it's got a. I believe a, it's slipped in years below Ohio State academically, but that's President Harrison. I think went there. Public Ivy. 
public. They like to say IV. it's a public IV, which apparently is somewhere below Ohio State. <laughs> I think is. And our guy today, Senator Ben Wade uh, from Ohio, he's the one who introduced the Morrill Act in, in the Senate. Why did it take, you know, I, I read that this bill was kind of introduced almost like in 1857, mm-hmm. but didn't pass until until 1862, just like the ale I'm drinking here. Yeah. Oh, so, why did it take so long? So what, as I understand it, so it was initially vetoed by the president, whoever the president no, was at the time. Buchanan. Buchanan, Buchanan yeah, yeah. a really terrible president. Yeah, right? and then... Um, One of the worst. And then, by the, and then... I guess the main opposition for the for the bill came from the South and the Southeast, um, and so when they when it was passed, it was during the Civil War. Oh and right, and so there's no Southerners in Congress. Exactly. So <laughs> all that opposition was conven- well, not conveniently, but was not. <laughs> I mean, inconveniently. Yeah, inconveniently was not uh, part of of Congress at that time. So. Um, so Lincoln signs into law, summer of 1862. Um, how does the Morrill Act lead to the creation of Ohio State? I mean, it, it's, it is a land-grant school, obviously. Mm-hmm. So Ohio State is, do you know when, when Ohio State was built? or? Yeah, so so Ohio State was founded as Ohio A&M in, I believe, 1873. Um, and it was very strictly an agriculture and manufacturing school. Um, and I believe there was a push uh, to sort of a more all-inclusive sort of you know, academic, um, plan and it became Ohio, the Ohio state university in 1878, I believe. So first five years or so is very agriculturally based, um, and then kind of expanded, um, academically in 1878 and they changed the name to, uh, Ohio state. Thanks to Walt for joining us. Uh, go check out landgrantbrewing.com, uh, or go to their tap room. It's up on West town street, just over the bridge from downtown in Franklinton. The war ends in April 1865. And a few days after the war ends, Lincoln is shot at Fort Theater. He's killed. And President Johnson becomes the president. People remember Johnson, sure, as the one Southern senator that stuck it out. But in March of that year, a month before Lincoln was killed at the inauguration, Johnson made a rambling, drunken speech. It's pretty famous nowadays. He was just... They said he was sick, and he had tried to pep himself up with whiskey, um, but he just made a terrible speech. He couldn't remember the Secretary of the Navy's name. Uh, It made no sense. Um, It was a real embarrassment for Johnson and and the inauguration itself, especially inauguration known for Lincoln making such a great speech at his second inaugural. We asked our friend Bruce Carlson about that drunken speech when President Johnson kind of burst onto the national scene. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a it's a difficult episode, and it's one of those things in when we're looking at history, and, and I'm always uh, I always I always think about this question a little bit uh, whenever we hear about the drunk in, in in American politics and and things like that. But I also think people have to understand that a lot more drinking went on generally, oh, yeah. uh, particularly a person reared in Tennessee politics in the West. Are you kidding me? Uh, giving stump speeches and the like. And, you know, water quality was not good from the founding of the American Republic uh, 
this was part of American life. I mean, prohibition came much, much later. Yeah. And so I think when you're when you apply that to Andrew Johnson, you also have to remember he had a great number of enemies. And one of the sources of that story about the inauguration is from Hannibal Hamlin, who was none too happy to be replaced uh, as as VP. He was an, an abolitionist and uh, he but he wasn't as politically useful to Lincoln and Lincoln kind of knew it. Um, that uh, someone like Johnson would be more useful. But he does, he he claims for medicinal purposes, he was not feeling that well on the train over, um, you know, has some whiskey, and so, yeah, the speech doesn't go that well. And mm. just like Harry Truman, uh, he's somebody who has little experience with the presidency who ends up in it. You know, Lincoln's killed just five weeks into his second term. President Johnson takes over. Uh, you know, there there was no vice president while he was president. Uh, it's not how it worked back then. You couldn't just name a new vice president. We asked Bruce about that in just the early years um, of the Johnson administration. Becomes president as as part of the Constitution at that time. It had not been amended with the 25th Amendment, which allowed for appointing a vice president. So with Lincoln assassinated, Johnson's president, there is no vice president. And in effect, there cannot be. And the line of succession at that time, as determined by Congress, the Constitution says, you know, Congress shall determine this, is, has the Senate pro temp as the, um, as the next in line to be president. The idea is that usually the Senate pro temp is somebody who is a great leader in the party that is in the majority. Obviously, they got elected by that party. So, they're the great leader that's the party in the majority of the Senate. It's usually a respected person. It's usually an older person, especially now. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly the case with Wade, but it, it's usually an older person. And um, if, you know, now it's Orrin Hatch, I believe. But it's always like the elder, an elder senator or yeah. a very well-respected senator in the party. And that was true then. So he gets himself elected the uh, president pro temp of the Senate, which is the president for the time being. And... Andrew Johnson is a vice president who becomes president at this time. There's no 25th. There's no uh, vice president. So, in effect, Benjamin Wade is the vice president. Actually, I was, I was just noting that in a in a funeral um, uh, eulogy, someone called him the vice president. That that achieving this term, you, you were by being the Senate pro temp, which would be at that time next in line to the presidency, he was the vice president. He did preside over the Senate. Uh, with Wade, it was a little bit more politics. I think it has to do with the courage that he demonstrated, which with the none of the, the, the Republicans that wanted a stronger reconstruction had to doubt that he was going to turn around and do something different. So I think that's how Wade gets the spot. And there's a lot that goes on. I don't think from the very beginning, from when Andrew Johnson becomes president, there was a immediately, it, it, there was not this kind of thought of impeachment. In fact, many thought that, Ben Wade thought that, uh, not liking Lincoln very much, it was pretty easy for him to think that Andrew Johnson would do a better job because he had been tough in Tennessee and he was really tough on big plantation owners that he thought started the war. Uh, the Charleston crowd, you know, that that was not somebody that w was Andrew Johnson's favorite people. As things in the Johnson administration began to spiral out of control, as he fights the Congress on Reconstruction, we find an incident with Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. We got to stop and tell you who Edwin Stanton is. He's an Ohioan, born in 
born in Steubenville, went to Kenyon College, an attorney, lived in Columbus for many years. Um, Edwin Stanton is a Secretary of War. He becomes Secretary of War, replacing Simon Cameron during the Civil War and leads the country through that war and stays on after Lincoln's death. He was tough to deal with. He was uh, difficult, had a really long beard. Uh, we'll put a picture of him on the, on the cover for this, this episode. Um, he's portrayed in the movie Lincoln. You can see Edwin Stanton. He spends a lot of time in that movie. But our guest today, Bruce Carlson, talks about an incident that sparks Johnson's impeachment when he tries to remove Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War, a respected member of the cabinet. It's, it's the... Uh straw that broke the camel's back, I guess you could say, uh, the, you know, there were some bad feelings before, but that's what brought it to actual versus, Hey, we're just going to wait till the 1868 election and put in grant or somebody else, or even Wade. Uh, it went to, we got to impeach him now. And that was that, um, Stanton was Lincoln's second secretary of war. And he, um, you know, you could do a whole episode about Stanton as well, and it's not uh, it's probably not uh, it's not in the scope of this. But but it, but it really he really is a character. And I'm not sure, you know, good, bad on him. One could do an analysis. He has a lot of bad traits. Oh, yeah. He could be a bit of a dictator and, and things like that. So there are a lot of people that didn't like him. But it is kind of he is in charge and Congress feels good. You know how there's a lot of talk these days like we have um, is there's there's President Trump and then there's a lot of the people that are working for him, like Kelly and Mathis and say, okay, well, I feel, you know, a lot of people are like, well, this guy tweets these crazy stuff, but I feel good as long as like Mathis is there, like kind of manning the, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what was going on. Like Johnson, oh, he's a little, and he would make some, some bad statements as well. He was, he was, uh, you know, we didn't have tweeting back then, but some of the things he said on the stump were pretty <laughs> bad, but, uh, you know, you had Stanton there in the war department and they felt pretty good about that because the thing to remember, the war department is controlling all of the military operations in the South and really controlling the reconstruction. They're the ones that are going to be able to enforce the reconstruction. They're protecting governors that are heading up reconstruction governments without them. Uh, if they're reduced, you're, you're not going to be able to keep those governments in place because they don't have popular support among white Southerners. Now, all of a sudden, uh, you know, stands sitting there in the office and Lorenzo Thomas comes in and says, well, sir, and Thomas works for Stanton, so Stanton, and Stanton's not a guy to be trifled with. So Stanton, Stanton's almost like, why are you wasting my time? I didn't order. What, what are you doing in my office? And it's like, well, sir, I've come to become Secretary of War. <laughs> Stanton's like, no. Right. He's, <laughs> and he's in a like, meeting with like some generals, I think. <laughs> he's in a meeting with other generals, and he says, sir, I will, I will, I, I will, I will insist that I will act as Secretary of War. And and Stanton's like, these generals are here. They will not. They will not listen to your orders. And furthermore, I order you back to your office. And then there's this weird standoff. It must have been quite a room to be in that goes on. And all of these details are later going to be, you know, uh, uh, depicted in the in the impeachment counts. But um, and eventually, uh, Stanton even has the prosecutor in D.C. bring up charges against Thomas, even though he's technically following. Johnson's order, and then that goes to the courts before, uh, while the impeachment proceedings are going on. And Thomas does go to another room, 
but uh, he doesn't leave the building immediately. Stanton stays exactly where he was. He is, and other than going home at night, uh, Stanton is spending most time in his office. He doesn't want to even leave to participate in what's going to be the impeachment proceedings or, yeah, or he's, hearing. He's staying the night, I think, for the first few <laughs> weeks. Stay, for the first few, yes, he's actually uh, holding out there because he's very worried that he'll he'll be replaced. Um, Johnson, uh, yeah, Johnson wants him replaced. And there's there can be no doubt if that had happened, what Johnson would follow that up with Thomas following his orders would relieve any commanders who had been very active in supporting African-American rights and and also in in enforcing um, uh, some of the keeping in protecting some of the governments. Georgia was a place where they were particularly worried that once the federal presence was gone it was over uh some of these some of these states charleston was a was 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 difficult where outside of the state house there wasn't a lot of control yeah. you know it was crumbling and so um they knew that if, if johnson had made this replacement that would that would be the end we we just don't think of it anymore like we the president fires their secretary of war the president fires the um secretary of defense or the secretary of state you know, not even something we question anymore. Or the head but this of the was, FBI, for example. Head of the FBI, right? <laughs> this was not something that was necessarily all worked out at this time. And uh, you know, it's not. It doesn't specifically say in the Constitution. It says the the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. And so, I mean, you know, this was something that was still a little. So this is what they run up against. The Congress wants to make it clear, but they want, as as, as was the 19th century way, they wanted more power vested in the Congress. So they say president cannot fire a member of the cabinet without getting congressional approval. You have to get congressional approval to hire the person, right? Sen senatorial approval to hire the person. So you also must get approval from Congress to fire them. And uh, that that's in effect what it is. It has some provisions. Um, and there's a lot of dispute. Johnson sometimes insists that he never violated the spirit of the law, but he does seek to, he makes this replacement. And this is then a violation of a congressional law as, as they see it. One of the things Johnson is going to say is, well, this hasn't gone to the Supreme Court yet. You know, so you can't say I'm, I'm violating the Constitution. The Supreme Court hasn't even weighed in about this thing. In February of, of 1868, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a resolution impeaching the president. They impeach President Johnson of high crimes and misdemeanors, like we talked about. It's a strict party vote, 128 to 47 by the House. Uh, and they draw up these, these charges, almost all of which are based out of the Tenure of Office Act, the firing of Secretary of War Edward Stanton. We asked Bruce about the filing of those impeachment charges and the impending trial, which takes place just a couple of weeks later. But they don't want to wait. There are the Republicans in the... Senate don't, don't, don't want to wait. They want to take some action. They do something interesting, though, because of um, the House first insists that the Senate supports impeachment based on the violation of the Tenure of Office Act. And this is a really interesting thing because I was talking about earlier, you know, the House is like a sitting duck. Once it, it incurs the wrath of the president, it gets nothing out of it because oh, the Senate could just could just acquit. And now the the senators are loved by the president. 
but the House is hated, and they get the wrath of this powerful executive branch. So in, in what they try to do, and it's it's interesting because it's not successful, is that they, they go to the Senate and say, you must pass a resolution that says you're supporting uh, impeachment charges, then we'll bring it. And they do. And everyone on the Republican side, uh, with a few a few vote no, but everyone votes yes. And then it goes to the House. They they do file impeachment charges. The accounts, it, it passes the House uh, pretty easily. It does, yeah. Among those senators who voted for the initial resolution in the Senate supporting the House action is Edmund Ross, the senator from Kansas who becomes so crucial in the acquittal of, of Johnson. So it just goes to show you, it really is hard for the House in these things. It's a lesson about impeachment. As the trial begins in March of 1868, Senator Ben Wade stands to become the next president. Odds makers are saying that Johnson will be impeached. He will be removed from office. Wade even starts talking to future cabinet members and making plans for what would be his 10 months as president. The impeachment trial in the Senate is presided over by Salmon P. Chase, another Ohioan, a famous Cincinnatian, a man who we will talk about in future episodes. Actually, this season we'll talk about him and even more specifically his daughter, Kate Chase, who was at almost all of those impeachment hearings. But Wade makes a decision and he refuses to recuse himself from the proceedings, even though he stands to become president to benefit. Um, we asked, you know, we asked Bruce, what, what would a Wade presidency look like and why didn't he recuse himself? And was that a big controversy? Benjamin Wade makes a controversial decision uh, to, uh, he's a senator, but he's also the president pro temp. And a lot of them, a lot of people want him to recuse himself because he'll yeah. become president of his conviction. Ben Wade decides not to. And so um, he decides that he is a senator and not a, a trier, a judge in that case. I mean, if uh, Johnson is impeached and, and it's one vote that stops it from, from that from happening, Benjamin Wade becomes president. And here is a guy who there is no doubt about how forceful he would have been as a president, how rigorous, say, the, the reconstruction would have become. Patronage would have changed. That's a factor. Uh, particularly one of the things that's going to happen in the Kansas case is that it's, you know, it, it's... It's he's friendlier with with Pomeroy, the other Kansas senator right. is, is, is on Wade's team and he's going to reward the people that are on his team. I and mean, they're going to have a very tight, well-working presidential administration. It's not going to be the Johnson White House. They're going to go in clean house. All the Johnson appointees are gone. There's going to be a rigorous prosecution of of reconstruction. There's basically seven votes that are needed for impeachment. These are these moderate or almost maverick-like Republicans. Uh, if everyone votes on party lines, they're going to get it. But there's seven Congress, there's seven senators that they don't know how they'll vote. Um, but after a while, five or six of them guys like Fessenden and Van Wick from West Virginia, they realize that it's really going to come down to just one senator's vote. The senator from Kansas, the new senator, the junior senator, Edmund Ross. Um, you know, you have to get the odds makers are are looking at this and they're seeing that you got to get 36 of 54 votes. Like we talked about, you got to get a two-thirds majority. Uh, both sides realize that they're one vote shy. Um, Johnson's people go after Ross. Uh, people like Senator Wade and the radical Republicans go after him, thinking he's a solid vote from a solid abolitionist state like Kansas. Um, we asked 
Bruce, who was Edmund Ross, the senator from Kansas? And which way is Edmund Ross going to vote? Because it looks like it's all going to come down to him. Northerner at birth, right? And an abolitionist, uh, you could say, uh, but a newspaper editor and involved in state politics. And in fact, uh, he uh, subs for a senator who was pro Johnson, who was who was um, pro compromise and who um, actually uh, shot himself because he couldn't handle the virulent political opposition in Kansas. I think the best way to describe it is this would be like uh, what, what Ross's situation in Kansas is, would be like a senator from California coming out as extremely pro-Trump or, say, a senator from Alabama coming out as extremely against uh, Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's the way to look at it in today's politics. Kansas was the, one of the strongest Republican states there had been. It was, it was a state where people literally shed blood for the Republican Party before the Civil War started. Yeah, bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas. He also doesn't keeps the cards close to his vest, too, and it starts to, word starts to spread slowly as impeachment charges are brought out that he's not saying either way what's going on. And, in fact, that's the case up until the vote on impeachment. He doesn't. He doesn't say I'm voting for impeachment. He starts telling people I'm I'm a I'm on a court. I'm going to listen to the evidence and make the best decision. And he gets letters and telegrams from Kansas that say you're, you're you need to you need to tell us how you're going to vote. We want to know. And he refuses. Who? So he does become a center of suspicion. Those other senators you referenced, I think largely they kind of knew. 1955 before he became president, then-Senator John F. Kennedy from Massachusetts, slaps his name onto a book that was ghostwritten called Profiles in Courage. It's a book I read the chapter on Edmund Ross. Uh, it's in my parents' library. I was there on Thanksgiving, and I read it. I remember reading it as a kid and thinking, man, this guy, Edmund Ross, really stands up and does what's right. But talking with Bruce and reading, you know, doing the research on this, it seems that JFK in his ghostwritten book, Profiles in Courage, was wrong. It appears the evidence looks like Edmund Ross might have been on the take. Uh, we asked Bruce Carlson about a guy that he ran with named Perry Fuller, a crooked lobbyist, um, and the controversy surrounding him and surrounding the vote of Edmund Ross. Was JFK mistaken that maybe this wasn't a profile in courage, but a profile in bribery? He's living in a house of a person who is a... Oh, kind of a wild politician in Kansas, and he's he's one of these uh, unscrupulous folks, really, who got his way around by bribing and had uh, made his fortune on Indian trading posts. That usually means not making trades with Indians that are favorable to them, right. but uh, <laughs> and convincing the government to take some Indian lands and then making money off those deals. And he's living in, in, in a house... Um, with them. And, uh, this is a, you know, and, and, and this is a family that's aligned with, with Johnson. that's aligned themselves against impeachment. So of course there's a lot of spec. You have this like really radical Republican who's, but he's living with the, with the enemy, Perry Fuller. You know, the Republicans had won the election in 1864, voted, got Lincoln back into office. They had won the war. Then a Democrat, Andrew Johnson had become president after this tragic assassination. And he was giving the job to Democrats. And he was undermining 
the Republicans' efforts to reconstruction, to, to transform the South after the war. They were upset. That's why oddsmakers thought that since the Republicans had the votes, that they'd be able to impeach him. But something else is at play here. A number of people, especially those seven Republicans who vote against impeachment, didn't want Senator Wade to be president. He was too volatile. He was too radical. And he was too unpredictable. You know, the New York Times had a quote at the time that Andrew Johnson is still president because Ben Wade is his successor. This idea of people voting to keep Johnson in office as much as they despised him over those four years he was president because they didn't want to see Wade there. We asked Bruce about that. I think people were afraid of that steamroller that was coming in. The politics and the personality, sure, is there. And if it was a lighter person, a more moderate person who was in that pro temp spot, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it, it's more likely, in fact, that Johnson would have been impeached. These impeachment hearings, they go on for almost two months. And they are must-see theater. Everyone's there. The women are dressed in their finest clothes. The most important men of the day are in the gallery in the U.S. Capitol building. And in May 16, 1868, the most popular ticket in town was for the vote. The closing arguments were done, and it was time for Salmon P. Chase, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from Cincinnati, Ohio, to take the vote. We mentioned his daughter Kate Chase was there. Um, you know, and like, like we said, it just was such an important event to be at, the, the event of the year. And so they get up and they go alphabetical, and everything's going according to plan. None of those other moderate or maverick Republicans vote to impeach, but people are still hopeful. And when they call Ross's name, the crowd gets incredibly quiet, and they say, Edmund P. Ross, how do you vote? And he, he answers, but he can't hear him. And they call out, say it again, sir. Ross says, not guilty. Audible gasps are heard throughout the Capitol. It's said that a lot of the senators knew that's how he was going to vote by the time that May 16th date came. But the public certainly didn't know that. And this was so late in the game, we're going, the R is going into the S's. Edmund Ross's vote means that he will not be impeached. By a vote of 35 to 19, not meeting the two-thirds majority they needed. They needed 36 out of 54. It's Edmund Ross's vote, a possibly purchased vote by the president. They say that the first time that he was called to vote, the Know, Chief Justice Chase has to say, could you please repeat it? Yeah, you're and right, then yeah. I think that he, you know, I think things were so hostile in that Capitol at that point that uh, he probably could have even been in jeopardy for his physical safety. I mean, that's just how strong. And then going back to Kansas, he certainly references that at times he felt that way. Um, it was a, you know, there were people saying that the Senator before him had committed suicide and there were people saying like, well, you know, um, I wish you'd use the same gun, you know, which is threatening, just like the kind of things you see on social media today aimed at politicians. Ben Wade in 1868 is not put on the ticket with General Ulysses Grant. 
Grant wins the election, not by a lot, about 53%. But Wade's out of politics. His time has come and gone. He leaves politics for good. We asked Bruce just about what happens with Edmund Ross after this vote. So many people in Kansas so upset with, with his decision to, to acquit and not impeach President Johnson. We asked, you know, Ross makes requests for patronage jobs. Um, Perry Fuller, his, his, uh, his lobbyist and friend and landlord or roommate, whatever you want to call it, he also gets favors from the president. It's these clues that lead me to think that Edmund Ross's vote was, was bought, either with political favors or cash or possibly both. We asked Bruce about Edmund Ross and Perry Fuller and the fallout from the impeachment vote. And it's not something that John F. Kennedy and Profiles of Courage focus much in his story, but it's something we do know is that he made requests to the, um, to the president to appoint several patronage jobs after his impeachment vote, which I think any modern would have considered that if you made this big principled stand on impeachment against your party, you need to stay away from the person that received the benefit of your vote. But he makes several requests, and one is for Perry Fuller. I don't think he gets the first job he wants, but I, I forget the specific position he does end up getting for him. And, of course, he gets convicted and <laughs> steals a lot, and it's a horrible um, decision. And um, in one of the statements, a letter to President Johnson from Ross, he says, this appointment I'm requesting is very important because of my impeachment vote. But, you know, that's still a mystery. That could be a little bit of, hey— I did this for you. You do this for me. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, you know what? I mean, I did this for you. I did it for the right reasons. But now I'm facing tremendous opposition. I got to show my state I can still influence politics or I'm done. And you could read it both ways. As we said, Wade leaves politics in 1878, at the age of 67. He goes back to Ohio. He continues to practice law. The man that Grant chose was another radical Republican, a guy named Skylar Colfax, to be his VP. Uh, Colfax actually married Ben Wade's niece later that year. Odd coincidence there. He loses the job and the guy marries his niece. Um, But he never becomes president. Nobody came closer to becoming president than Benjamin Wade. He would die in Jefferson, Ohio, 10 years later after the vote in 1878. We asked Bruce Carlson one last question. Just has anyone ever come this close? One vote away from president. The story of Senator Ben Wade of Ohio. He's the closest because uh, the real way to look at that is it, it, all betting odds would have been the other way. Where all these other events we can talk about uh, would be um, you know, a, a small chance. They, we wouldn't have expected it. But this was, uh, this was a guy that had all the odds in Washington were that, uh, you know, they didn't know that there was some trouble with this Ross guy, but they figured the votes were there. And had he been president, he would have been a, one of the more radical presidents we've ever had. A person that early on, even at these times, supported women's rights, um, that wanted, wanted women's rights added to some of the civil rights bills that obviously supported strongly rights for African-Americans, saw them as equal and um, also was was skeptical about capitalism and its ability to deliver income to people and thought that people were getting cheated by big business 
And so you would have a president. Now, again, I take that other side. Maybe it would have only been a uh, a short presidency. Yeah, eight months, and, ten months. Yeah. And then the conservatives and moderates and the Republicans would have nominated somebody else and got him out of there. But who knows? Uh, we we would have had one of the more radical presidents. going to do it for episode five, Ohio vs. Impeachment. Our book recommendation today, Read Impeached, The Trial of Andrew Johnson. It's by David Stewart, written in 2009. Uh, great book, and we really, really enjoyed it. Had, uh, had a lot of stuff about Ben Wade, a lot of stuff about the actual hearing, which was really interesting. Um, very cool book. Again, Impeached by David O. Stewart. Check that book out uh, as soon as you get a chance to learn way more about this this crazy time in, in American history. Uh, thanks again to Walt Keys from Land Grant Brewing. Can't wait to check out the new Ray Ray's barbecue they just put in over there next week. I'm going to grab some lunch down there. Um, awesome brewery. Go to visit them in, in Franklinton. Um, LandGrantBrewing.com. Thanks to Julie Keys for hooking that up. Also, special thanks to Bruce Carlson. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Like I said, one of my absolute favorite shows on iTunes. Um, so get on there, and I promised him that some of my listeners would check his show out. So let's let him know. Like him on Facebook. He's got like 7,000 likes on his page. Um, but go check out Bruce. I'd really appreciate him joining us for two episodes this season. We can't wait to have him back. Again, we got T-shirts for sale. Email me, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram. All that good stuff. It's been an awesome year. Thank you guys so much. Um, we will see you in 2018, and we'll see you for episode six, where we sit down with Brady Kreitzer, another uh, another podcast host from one of my favorite shows called Wartime. Uh, we sit down with Brady Kreitzer to talk about the Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. So we'll talk about the Native American experience at the turn of the 18th century and that famous, famous leader of the Shawnee people here in Ohio. Tecumseh. So we're really looking forward to that. Give our friends over at In the Record Store podcast a listen. Um, and we will actually be having Vince from that show on for a future episode that we're doing here in a couple of weeks. So we're looking forward to sitting down and interviewing him. But that's going to do it, guys. All this talk about impeachment out there, now, you, now you're armed with the knowledge of, of how it works. Um, and whether it's something we ever see in our lifetime, I can't say, even though you see commercials to impeach Trump these days. Um, and even, you know, people calling votes. And there are a lot of similarities between President Johnson and President Trump as far as the political atmosphere surrounding them. Um, very different presidents from their predecessors, for sure. So we'll keep an eye on that. Again, if you have any questions, shoot me an email, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. You can message us there as well with show ideas, anything else you think I need to know about Ohio history. So many people have reached out. Um, and we've had so much fun in 2017 bringing it to you. And we'll keep it going next year with Season 2 and Season 3 later in the year. So thank you guys so much. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. And lastly, go Bucks. Beat USC in the Cotton Bowl. And we will see you guys in 2018. Take it easy.
Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.